Shush! Shush! Silence! My name is Glenda Reed, crack librarian, and I shush to kill. So there better not be any talking between the acts, or during the acts, you can talk between the acts, but there better not be any talking during the acts tonight, or you will be date stamped. Got that? Jolly good. Right, well, welcome to our wonderful literary soiree this evening. Um, we have a wonderful lineup of writers for you. All of them have been regulars in my library at one time or another. And uh, don't forget, you can buy their books at the back there, at the little bookshop, where there's no lending of books here tonight. It's not a library. You'll have to buy them. And uh, don't, also, because it's Christmas, we're doing a wonderful book raffle. So if you buy a raffle ticket for a pound, you can get one of three lovely bags of mystery books. Isn't that wonderful? And all the money goes to the Brixton Soup Kitchen. So um, you can buy a raffle ticket, you can buy a book. And if you've got any food lying about at home you don't want, come along and give it to the Soup Kitchen too. Okay, uh, are you sitting comfortably? Jolly good, then we'll begin. <clears throat> so our first act this evening is Tony Scott. Now, Tony is a retired senior manager in further education. She was a teacher, she was a language teacher. I could tell she was a language teacher because she asked me if I could name two pronouns and I said, who, me? <clears throat> and uh, she's, she's lived locally for many, many years. She lives, currently lives in Norwood and as her interests include tennis, dogs, gardening, cinema, music and reading, she'll be delighted that her local library in West Norwood now has a cinema in it so she can combine both things, <clears throat> possibly not at the same time. Anyway, she's here to read you from her first book, Adrift. Please welcome Tony Scott. Good evening. So, I'm Tony. Um, I never thought I'd walk into a library and find my name associated with insanity, uh, but that's what my book's all about. Uh, but I use a pseudonym. I simply plucked a name out of thin air and I came up with Nikki Adams totally unaware that there was a female boxer by the name of Nicola Adams um, so thinking about it it seemed altogether quite appropriate because I had quite a struggle at one stage in my life and my book Adrift completely at sea with paranoid schizophrenia um, it's a compelling memoir examining the agonizing dilemma faced by the wife of a sufferer of paranoid schizophrenia. And it's a true story set between the mid-70s, the mid-80s, and it's set just around the corner from here, ironically, um, one of the first houses on Dulwich Road. So I'm going to read two sections from my book. Uh, the first section is... Um, well, well over halfway through and gives away a bit of the plot, but never mind. As soon as I had the opportunity, I rang Vincent's GP. I hear he's been knocking you about, she said, getting straight to the point. Yes, I really need your advice, I said. Have you received his medical records yet? Well, they've just come in the post today, but I haven't had a chance to read them yet. I explained to the doctor as briefly as possible the process we'd been through, including Vincent's admission to hospital, 
his refusal of medication and his current counselling sessions. She was very direct with her advice. It's a terrible thing to have to say, but if things are as bad as you describe, why don't you leave home? I told her about the extensive work he'd done on the house and about my hope that Vincent might change if only he could be treated with the right medication. You can't make a leopard change his spots, she remarked with a poignancy that struck a reverberating chord. It transpired that the tablets she'd prescribed were merely tranquilizers, and therefore would be of little long-term use. The doctor went on to explain that even if he took them regularly, they would have no effect on his symptoms of schizophrenia. I can't do anything to treat him properly until he himself asks me for help. This is the way the legal procedures operate. I've spoken to your GP, Dr. King, who said he'd be delighted to see you. Well, please read his medical records carefully, I asked, but don't on any account let Vincent know that I've been in contact with you. I can't emphasize enough how important this is, as he'll take it out on me. Oh, don't worry about that. If you feel you want to talk again, give me a call. After this conversation, I realized even more clearly that not only was I fighting a losing battle trying to get Vincent help, but the, that the absurdity of the hideous system was being overlooked by all the health professionals. It seemed to me that the legal procedures were almost as crazy as the illness itself. How could someone suffering from paranoid schizophrenia be expected to ask for treatment when his total lack of insight into his, into his own illness was a very feature of the condition. And how could I be expected to get Vincent sectioned when he would hold me responsible for this for the rest of our lives? Why should I put my life in jeopardy? How many others were there out there struggling like me to find a solution? How many families caught up in this untenable situation? And how many sufferers mental health requirements were being seriously neglected. I've just got one more short paragraph to read. My decision was now as firm as steel. Each time that Vincent did something to spite me, I now felt stronger, and my fear changed to concealed, seething anger. Naturally, I had to be very careful not to reveal my true feelings. During that week that followed, I started to pre prepare in my mind exactly how I would carry out my meticulous plan. It was to be executed with military precision. I was forced into the role of actress and scheming collaborator. It was the very role that Vincent had cast for me anyway. I had to force myself to eat, smile and look relaxed whenever Vincent was around. But when he was out of sight, I would be wringing my hands and pacing up and down. I was living on adrenaline again, but in a different and more controlled and purposeful way compared to before. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Tony. Now, 
Our next, our next reader is a young man called Barry Stuart Hunter, who has grown up in the Middle East and in Scotland. He's the author of two short story collections and also a novel. And his novel, Aidan, is a ravishing tale of love, loss, ambition, and betrayal set against an end of empire backdrop of revolution. As well as featuring literary reviews, his stories have been collected in anthologies and broadcast on BBC Radio 4, the correct radio station for people like us. Don't you agree? Which <clears throat> almost makes up for him living in North London, but there we are. Anyway, <clears throat> Barry Stewart Hunter, here you are. Thanks very much. Good evening, everyone. Um, a big uh, shout out to Book Jam for having me back. Um, tonight I'm going to read from Two Summers of Billy Morton. It's a novel set in 1968. It concerns um, a young English photographer, Billy, who turns his back on London and moves to Paris uh, on the eve of the student riots there in May 1968. Um, while he's in Paris, uh, Billy makes a disastrous choice that threatens to curse his life forever. And the book is really the story of how he comes to terms with the consequences of that fateful decision. Um, it's a novel about the journey from youth to maturity. And in this short passage, which is taken from very early on in the book, when we're just getting to know Billy, um, we catch an early glimpse of the road that leads from innocence to experience. I quit the King's Road and followed Oakley Street and the rush hour cars crawling south. It was only half past five, but all the headlights were on. On either side, the white faces of terraced houses took on the early pinkness of street lamps, and behind the windows of the raised ground floors, the rocking horses roamed in an electric heaven. It was frosty. I could see my breath. I pulled up my hood and adjusted the load on my back. Across the river, floating low over Battersea Park, the moon was small and hard with a corona of astral fog around it. You could see the moon's breath. There wasn't really a plan as such. By the time I got close to Shaney Walk, I could smell the foul river at low tide. In front of me, lovely Albert Bridge was lit up like a little Las Vegas or a budding Blackpool. The bridge was just an excuse. It was the river, running slowly, bending blackly, which drew me on, as it always did, as it always had done. To lean, looking east from its bridges, and spit at police launches and refuse barges, and watch my spit carry like gull shit towards St. Paul's and the sea. Then I was content. Then my hair was in my eyes, and my heart was in my hands, and the river whispered, jump, don't jump, fly, don't fly. Then I was the only one. The cruel city was mine. There is a plaque on the south side of Albert Bridge that tells marching troops to break step as they cross the river towards this or that battle in Chelsea or Fulham. It was next to this directive that I planted my tripod on the pavement, facing due north now with the brilliant bridge before me. I unfastened my backpack and took out the Gandolfi, beautiful camera so dear to me, and folded out the lens plate and mounted the box on the tripod as rapidly as I could. I don't like to make a scene. People are kind, but I don't, as a rule, like to draw attention to myself. My hands were getting cold because I didn't have any gloves on. Even so, I worked quickly. 
I took off my coat and threw it over my head to cut out the light as I examined the image upside down, laterally reversed, on the ground glass screen at the back of the camera. I had the bridge in prospect. I had the illuminated girders in my sights. I took a meter reading and worked it out from there, a full minute's exposure at F8, allowing for reciprocity law failure. When the light falls below a critical level, all the silver particles suspended in the film's emulsion cry out for extra time. Now the curious cars were slowing and the cyclists rang their bells and it was time to take the picture. It would be a new self-portrait with my mum. Excuse me, sir, I called out. How exactly can I help you? The man was leaning towards me, framed by the car window. He was pushing 50, maybe, with slicked back hair and glasses. He had braked hard and then stopped. He had to reach across from the driver's side of his car, the smoke from his cigarette making him squint in order to wind the window down further on my side. Now the traffic leaving the bridge behind him was honking and he had to pull over on the pavement just beyond me. Hello, sir. Any chance of giving me a hand here? I should think so, yes. Why not? Why not indeed? Only I need someone to hold the shutter open while I stand on the bridge with my mum. I see, I see. The boy stood on the burning deck. He did so with his black and white mum. I stood at the plane of focus with the lights of the bridge all around and hugged a life-size blow-up of my mother, this image I had mounted on hinged plywood for ease of transportation. As we counted out the seconds together, me in my head, the rush hour ferry with his watch. For a full minute, I stood motionless, as relaxed as the situation and the creeping cold allowed, while the lights of the crawling cars traced their passage in streaks across the surface of the film. As for my mother, she seemed relaxed enough too. She had on her jacket or short coat of fake ocelot. The Berlin wall of her hair rose up thickly lacquered from her forehead to scrape the lowest stars. In black and white, her red lipstick smile hovered, sensuous but decent, in a region just beyond slate gray. That's a big tripod, I must say. I wouldn't want to lug that monster all the way home. It is big, yes, but it's not as heavy as it looks. How far have you got to go, son? Not too far, North Cairn or Ladbroke Grove. Perhaps I can offer you a lift, if you want. I think you know what I want. Your motor's facing the wrong way now. How much is it, anyway? It depends, doesn't it? Come on, then, it's cold. From the ashtray, the crust crushed cigarette continued to give out its smoke. Even so, you could smell the leather inside the car, the leather of the seats. In the glove compartment was a small round tin of boiled sweets dusted with powdered sugar. I took one of the red pastels, the driver had two. Gift from the wife, he told me. Lucky you, I said, smashing. Cheers. Thank you, Barry. Now, our next reader has come all the way from Malaysia. Um, Ivy Nya was uh, born and raised in Malaysia. She, uh, in 2005, won the Middlesex University Literary Prize out of 1,500 entrants. And also, she, in 2016, she won the International Provost Prize for her first novel. 
And her latest novel is called Heart of Glass. Now, I do like a novel that's named after a nice disco dancing tune, because I'm just like Theresa May. I love a boogie, you know, I love a boogie. And uh, it reminds me of when those, those young ladies, uh, Salt and Pepper, came into my library. They're terribly badly behaved young women. They were making far too much noise, and I had to say, Salt and Pepper, shush it! Shush it good! Shush it! Shush it real good! Anyway, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going off the point there. And anyway, yes, so our next reader is Ivy Niao. Please welcome her to the stage. Good evening, Brixton. Thank you very much for welcoming ba uh, me back to Brixton Book Jam. Um, tonight, I'm going to talk about my latest novel, Heart of Glass, which is a crime noir set in Chicago and Macau in the 1980s. It is about uh, a Chinese girl called Leanne, an immigrant in Chicago, and it raises the themes of youth, greed, um, impulse, and dumbness. So... Um, with her accomplice, who is um, this white trash older lady called Dallas, they rob um, rich guys. Um, and one day she's offered a job abroad in Macau. And just remember, she's never had a job before, let alone a job abroad. So we follow her adventures as um, she leaves the home country and and experiences her, uh, her new culture, which is the Macanese culture. So the section I'm going to be reading is um, about her meeting Dallas. So before I start, I just want to apologize to anybody who is uh, American of Chinese origin or American of white trash origin because I'm going to be reading in the character's own voices. I met Dallas six years ago in the summer of 74, and that was when things were beginning to look up for me. She saved me from being a toothless hobo. I was 17. My father and my stepmom, Cheryl Ann, threw me out. By then, I'd already got all the education I needed. I'd gone to a proper Catholic school, majoring in music, Catholic to please my stepmom and music to please my mom. I dropped out of high school altogether. I emptied Cheryl Ann's purse when she wasn't looking, and boy, she never looked. And I got 140 bucks. I packed up all I could fit into two rucksacks and I grabbed my acoustic guitar. I could name every chord that ever was and play any tune by ear. I could pick up any instrument and pretty much work out how to play it in an hour. But I had not worked a day in my life before. I hadn't a clue even how to work. I most definitely have been on the streets had I not met Dallas. I'd already spent the first night in some dump for which I had to part with some of my cash. Day two of leaving home, I was pounding the sidewalks west of Chinatown at West Mac and South Canal Street and knocking on doors, begging for anything that anyone could give me. A job, food, music, tapes, 
anything. I stayed close to Chinatown because I reminded myself, firstly, I was an immigrant. Secondly, I was Chinese. Chinese people stay close to Chinatown to meet other Chinese people. That was what you're supposed to do. And if that failed, there were also Irish, Jewish, Lithuanian, Italian, Greek, Mexican, and other emigres in Chinatown. Dallas was in a fluffy dressing gown and had just stepped out for a smoke from an artist studio and West 34th, real close to the railway line. She offered me a cigarette, but I declined. She then knew I wasn't in for the short term. What do you want, kid? She said, blowing smoke in my face. She was a striking broad, all hair, lashes, and lips. Even had a beauty spot right where it should be. I'm real good at, at work, I said. I can do um, anything. Except that it sounded more like a question to myself. Even play guitar, I added with a triumphant flourish that was way uncool and childish. Anything, she said. Huh. The thought of my desperation made her smile. She was like somebody who would play a bimbo in a caper film as a decoy for the baddies. I never saw how old she was, but she must have seen just how young I was. My appearance must have been pleasing to her. Your luck's in, she said. You can move in with me. But in exchange, I had to work with her. I agreed to anything. Didn't care enough. I was only 17, but I just got a job the day after I left home. My mom never had such luck. I miss my mom so much. It wasn't her fault. She got depressed and couldn't handle us. Life in the States, the food, daddy's drinking, and the worst of all, winters. It was a lot. She was an immigrant with high expectations and high hopes. They all had, well, they all started off that way anyway. She was lonely. She got sick with no one to care for her. Couldn't even call home as the international calls to Singapore cost more than $100 each time. $2 per minute. More if you went through an operator. Each minute to speak to someone back home was like a fleck of gold dust. Now Dallas fed and clothed me. She was more mother than a sister or a friend. She totally got it when I spent evenings telling her about my mom. She wept. Dallas said she was a mom once. It was sad. She couldn't speak about it. Not then, maybe another time. But she never wept long as she was vain and she didn't want to ruin her perfect makeup. And crying was the daddy of all wrinkles, she said. She always called me kid, girl, sweetheart. She was so happy to see me. No one had ever been happy to see me. Cheryl Ann didn't speak to me, and if she did, she said, scram. Daddy went along with her and said nothing. When Della said, good morning, did you sleep well, kid? I'm so happy to see you. Every day, I knew I owed her big time. She loved me, and I her. Thank you very much.
Thank you, dear. Now, our next reader is Porig Walsh. He's a playwright. Oh, a playwright. I remember all of the lovely playwrights who used to come to my library. Little Joe Orton, he was often in my library. He used to, he used to come um, with his young friend and they'd disappear down into the modern classics section. They'd be there for hours and I'd say, what on earth are you doing down there, Joe? He'd say, we're getting into E.M. Forster, Glenda. He said, you know, you know me. He said, once I get my nose stuck into Howard's End, you won't see me come up till I'm through a passage to India. Dear Joe, he was a lovely lad. And we also had that lovely playwright, um, <clears throat> John Osborne, but he was always so terribly angry, terribly angry young man. And, but he did write some marvellous plays. He wrote that marvellous play all about the underfunding of his local libraries in Essex, and it was called uh, Book Lack in Anger. That was it. That was his play. It was marvellous, marvellous. <clears throat> so we have a playwright here, Porrick. Um, he's also a screenwriter and a fiction writer. He's the 2017-18 writer on attachment with the Oxford Playhouse. Now, when I first read that, I assumed he had books in the 155.418 section alongside all those books by John Bowlby, but apparently it wasn't that kind of writing on attachment. <clears throat> um, and he won the Walter Swan Trust Playwriting Award in 2015, and last year his play was broadcast on BBC Radio 4, again you see what good company we're in, <clears throat> and was shortlisted for Best Original Audio Drama at the 2018 BBC Audio Drama Awards. And his fiction has appeared in uh, The Stinging Fly and Ciphers, whatever they are. <clears throat> uh, he, uh, yes, so here we are. Uh, please welcome Porog Walsh. Thank you. Uh, so most of my fiction has been getting like longer and longer. But I've got one short piece. It's like flash fiction. It's 860 words. It's the only piece of flash fiction I have. And it's, I've never published it, and I've never read it out loud. It's kind of a sly, coarse, little short story. So I'm going to try it out on you guys, see what you think. It's only two pages long. How bad could it be? <laughs> All right. So it's called What I Know Now. Even the weather is getting thick now, so we're leaving Ginny to watch the rest of the second half by herself. Ginny's my wife's sister. She's over to present Man of the Match. We're walking to the clubhouse, me trailing her to stop us from starting. Inside, there's already a good crowd slashing about at the bar. My cousin Ed spots us from the middle of a round of them. P, Peter, you have it solved. This is, my, this is Peter, my cousin. This is the man that has it solved, I'll tell you that. P, the women are unreal here, hey. Some spot. Got talking to this one on the tube. Yeah, sure, the tube is full of women. Oh, just shy talk, how's things? Are you finished work? Shy talk. No, no numbers, no need. Look up on Facebook. I've a bird at home anyway. Well, yeah, we'll see. I've said to her, are we going to have a child or not? Because what's the point otherwise? Do you know what I mean? She already has two, so there's no excuses. She goes, yeah, you know, if it lasts, and I'm up for it. But you need a child to make it last, is what I'm saying. Anyway, we'll see. Is that Keller? Keller, you bollocks. Are you out for the day? Yeah. We're taking our chance to get away from Ed. And I think now I say, we came in at the right time, seeing a homely drift of sideways rain at the, at the light above the treetops. That's all it takes to finally start it. I hope Ginny's okay. She wasn't wearing her coat. She's grand. Are you okay? Why wouldn't I be okay? I don't know. Well, why are you asking me so? I don't know. I'm just asking you. Well, then I'm fine. That's why I'm asking, because you're not fine. Well, what's so wrong with me so? I don't know. Well, what's wrong with me? Come on. Well, what's so wrong with me? Let's go outside. If we're going to talk, can we go outside, please? We're crossing the room, but the place is filled out now, so it's slow going with the hellos and the people grabbing at you for a pint or to say about the soft weather or the good crowd. So slow that we're as tight as lovers whenever we come to a halt, pressing against each other as the crowd presses in on us. 
it changes us from one thing to the other. So that instead of going outside, we slip into the disabled toilets, laughing, forgetting why we ever wanted to talk. Afterwards, back in the room, we're holding hands too tight, and neither of us is saying anything until someone finally does. I better find Ginny. The match is long over, and she's gone. I'm not stepping outside by myself in case I leave, so I'm staring at my phone, and then I'm reading over a draft of a long email I never sent. Peter, you look miserable. It's her uncle, the Roscommon Club chairman. He's after walking right up to me with my wife under his pint arm. And the fine woman you have here for yourself, isn't that it? Are you enjoying London? When are you two going to get married? Come on now, I want an answer. Don't be telling me you don't know. When you know, you know. My woman, God rest her, knew I was going to propose before I did. Someone has to know what they're doing, isn't that it? Because you don't want to be on your own, let me tell you that. Cheers. That's when Ginny lands in the door with a little high-heeled jog. You're soaked. Sarah's running a farm hand down Ginny's waist, as if slipping a leash back on. She's soaked. Didn't I tell you she didn't have her fucking coat on her? Come on, I love birds. Enough of that. Girls, we get this man of the match business sorted. What do you say? We can use you both. One on each arm, huh? The uncle is having someone turn on the microphone and move a table off the little stage in the corner. But the microphone is cutting in and out, so Ginny has to shout her speech about fundraising and the Mayo Roscommon hospice, with the uncle chiming in to repeat and contradict what she's saying. My wife is handing Ginny the medal to present to the man of the match, and both of them are giving a jokey kiss that takes too long. The whole thing is so awkward that we're clapping after every half sentence just to give ourselves a chance to laugh. I'm laughing the most. P, what's your secret? It's Ed. He's after landing up beside me and is staring straight ahead at my wife. You know you have it solved, don't you? You have it solved, and you don't even know what the problem is. Thank you. Thank you, Park. And now for our last act of this first set, our last reader, you've got to be very careful around him because anything you say is like to be written down and included in his next book. Um, Dave McGowan was born and bred in southeast London. Now, I know this because he was always in my library when he was a young man, looking things up, although unfortunately it turned out to be ladies' skirts that he was looking up. <clears throat> so we had to uh, do something about that. And then I found him Googling himself in the 616.693 section, so we had to bar him for a while. But I know how much he loves books and libraries because he said to me recently, he said, every time I think of you, Glenda, I touch my shelf. At least I think, I think that's what he said. <clears throat> anyway, he, he, he's had short stories published in the Birkbeck Writers Hub and the Mechanics Institute Review. And he's the host of a literary evening called In Your Ear. <clears throat> <clears throat> Very bad spelling, terrible grammar there. Last Tuesday of every month at the King and Queen in Fitzrovia. His new book, Earwigging, is for sale over at the bookshop. And he's going to read from it now. Please welcome Dave McGowan. Oh, hello. It's a bit short, isn't it? Uh, thank you, Glenda. Um, Yes, uh, for some reason, some people up in Hull had some uh, Arts Council money and decided to spend it on my book here. It's got uh, 16 pieces of flash fiction and 10 earwigging sections of what Glenda was referring to earlier. By the way, I run my night in your ear at the French house and not the King and Queen anymore. Um, and seeing as everyone has read something with a narrative and a plot tonight, I thought I'd read you the earwigging pieces, which are kind of all connected because... It's the overheard world. Uh, but they're just there for a laugh, really, because they're quite funny, I think. 
So, oh. One does forget. They're quite a new attack. Uh, right, so, I'm sitting on the top deck of the 172, heading towards South London. The digital display above the front window helpfully tells us bus stopping. And what next? Signs nailed to oaks that announce tree growing. A woman with silver hair and a fur-collared coat is sitting in the front seat. She's telling the young woman sat next to her what she thinks of her niece's new fella. I could knit myself a better man, she spits. I'm staying with friends and we've run out of Rizzlers, so I volunteered to nip down to the corner shop in Emmanuel Road up on West Hill. Someone's neglected pear tree has spilled its unpicked load. A gang of wasps are getting pissed up on the fermented juices of the spilt fruits. As if wasps weren't belligerent enough. Outside the shop, tied to a lamppost, there is a floral tribute dedicated to two young motorcyclists who died trying to outrun the police. In the shop, a young woman wearing pipe pyjamas and wonky Ugg boots has a sliced loaf tucked under her arm. She bends at the waist and peruses the shelves of salty snacks. A little girl comes round the corner from the neighbouring aisle. She has pigtails and is waving a packet of biscuits. Mummy! The woman, the woman looks at her and says to the child, put that back, you spastic. A couple of lads get on the London train at Frant, <laughs> Frant, and sit next to me, sit behind me rather. They are sharing a beer and they smell of skunk. One says, listen men, I was well freaked out on my way home the other night. I was walking down the road and this car just kept getting wider and wider. And then I realised it was two blokes on bikes. I'm on the 68 bus going to Hearn Hill. There's a business couple, possibly office lovers, a few seats in front of me. We are the only people on the upper deck. I slip out my notebook and pen and start writing down what they are doing, what they are saying, but scratch it all when the woman says, I think that bloke's writing down what we're saying. <laughs> a groovy chick is lunching with a guy who is sporting an Afghan westcott in some pub in Hackney. She is venting about a recent visit from her mother. I paid £95 for lunch in London Bridge and she right made sure she had a pudding, brandy, everything and she was still rude. Then on the way back she started walking like a granny and her dog started weeing everywhere. I don't know why I bother. You don't understand, babes. She's from the country. She's all about welly liners and judgement. <laughs> in the local, a drippy looking guy is mansplaining about Roman London's his date. She's drifting off and flicking her eyes through the window at the passerby. Out of the blue, he drops the subject and says, of course, Keith Vaz has always had a penchant for male prostitutes. <laughs> Two guys are walking down Lower Marsh, clutching takeaway containers. How'd you get on on that internet date last night? So, I met up with her, yeah, and we got on on that. So we went back to mine, yeah, and she's got this gammy leg, and I think, all right, never mind. Then I wake up in the morning and she shat the bed. She says, oh, that's rotten, mate. Says, you know what? I'm seeing her again tonight. <laughs> Downstairs at the Soho Theatre and Christine Vale is on stage. 
She and her dancers have been fingering their arseholes to the tune of African mayonnaise, her popular hit. I am there to review the show for the Labour Party in-house magazine. Christine jumps into the audience to intimidate a man in a lumberjack shirt. She thrusts her horror show face into that of my demure companion. My sweet friend spits square in Christine's face. Christine smiles, her teeth smeared with lipstick, saliva strung across her eye, and pronounces, masculinity is dead. <laughs> time for a couple more? Hmm? Yeah. I'm with my mate Ryan. We're sitting in a pub in Robin Hood's Bay in North Yorkshire. Half the people in the pub look almost identical. They've got extra small heads supported by long, thin necks, tiny mouths, eyes that are too close together, and beaks for noses. Me and Ryan are on Mexican gold cap mushrooms. <laughs> preparing to introduce ourselves to a table full of ladies. There are two couples discussing their teenage years on the next table. One of the women says, I lost my virginity to a bloke who worked on a maggot farm. You could never quite get the smell off him. <coughs> Up Cleveland Street, on my way to In Your Ear, the famous spoken word night. Two lads walking in front of me with their hoods up or chatting conspiratorially. As I pass them, one says, I call it cock vomit. At Port Elliot, our band was camped next to one of them families that finds nothing wrong with bringing a screaming infant to a festival but get, then gets all up at you the moment you turn up with a bunch of drunk and drugged up mates at four in the morning. <laughs> anyway, what we heard from their tent was, India, put that back, that's daddy's jackalt. In a Brixton pub, one Geordie barmaid says to the other Geordie barmaid, I hate that new guy so much that when he said he liked my new jacket, I considered throwing it in the bin. <laughs> Rightio, I'll finish off with a couple more. I'm early for my train to South London, so I nip into the Blackfriar, an ornate little arts and crafts pub. It is unusually busy for a city pub on a Saturday afternoon. The staff are crap. That is a given, for this is a Nicholson's-run establishment. The punters are a mix of over-enthusiastic Norwegians, gay guys, all who seem to be on blind dates, and the bridge and tunnel people. The Norwegians, I know they are Norwegians because half of them have got the Norwegian flag sewn onto an item of clothing or a rucksack are taking photos of each other, gurning, grinning, standing on one leg, throwing a peace sign. One guy says to a camera-toting friend, here's my Norwegian accent, folks, I love what you're doing, I love it that you brought me here, and I love you. One of the gay guys, leaning next to me at the bar, says to his date, actually, my sculpture is irrelevant to humans. The female half of a couple, who are probably from Luton or some such like, says to her partner, Shall we sit over there? He says, 1325 for a glazed hammock, they're having a laugh. <laughs> Sitting adjacent to me on the train to Loughborough Junction, a woman in her 20s has her head rested against the window and her converse resting on the seat. She's on the phone, dishing out advice to someone. 
Go to the pub, babes. Unless you're actually dripping in pus, you should be okay. <laughs> a woman and a small boy emerge from Blackfriars Station holding hands. Is this London? asks the little boy. Yes, it is, replies the mum. Yeah! shouts the boy, letting go of his mum's hand, jumping up and down and punching the air. And behind them, the Thames makes its way out to the sea. Thank you. Did I say thank you to um, uh, uh, Stuart and Zelda? Thank you, thank you. Thank you, David. Now it's time for a short 10-minute break. Don't forget we have books for sale, we have raffle tickets for sale, and we have pizza for sale if anybody's hungry, so you don't need to go home ever. Okay. Okay. 